Hello and welcome to Found, the TechCrunch podcast where we bring you the stories behind the startups from the folks who are building them themselves. I'm joined today, as always, by the lovely, the, is she in Florida right now? Dominic Widori Davis. And yes, I'm still in Florida, but I'm about to leave back to New York. So I hope the weather up there is decent. I mean, down here is like really, really hot. So I'm hoping that it's not as hot, but like, you know. Yeah, no, it's been lovely the past week. So lucky us. And the nice weather means there's no rain. And speaking of water, we have a great water startup coming on the pod today. Today, we're talking to Tyler Breton and Ruben Vollmer, the co-founders of Spout, which is a countertop atmospheric water generator. And here's our conversation with them. Hey, Ruben. Hey, Tyler. How's it going? It's going great. How you doing? Hanging in there. Fighting the allergy season. <laughs> Got some neighbors with some construction going in the yard. So a lot of forces against us, but good nonetheless. <laughs> we will succeed regardless, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Rain or shine, noise or quiet, this podcast gets recorded. <laughs> I like it. How about you, Tyler? How are you? I'm good. Fabulous. Well, really excited to dive into this one today, knowing that you guys got sent over by my fun VC friend, Tom, who I am always excited about kind of what he's got his hands on. Why don't you guys tell us about Spout? Sure. Yeah, Spout's our company, and we develop self-reliant technology for the home. And our first product is the water maker, the Spout water maker, which makes up to two and a half gallons of fresh drinking water a day from the air. So wherever you plug in this machine, which I have a little demo behind me, unfortunately, the listeners can't see that, but at least you guys get to see it. It's a real thing. It looks beautiful. Listeners, it looks cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, the cool thing about it is you plug it in and you're able to have a new source of fresh drinking water. So you don't have to rely on tap water. You don't have to rely on pipes or taking water from nature or from plastic bottles, which you know people don't like so much these days for good reasons. So this is a new third source of water that we're very, very proud to present to the world. And that's such an interesting concept, because when you think about it at first, obviously there's water in the air. I mean, everyone complains about humidity, and like you can see it in the morning, in the spring, you see it in the dew. Like Obviously, there's water in the air, and yet the concept of sort of extracting water from the air seems like a new one. Because obviously, if you guys are building it now, it's not like, oh, we've been doing this since the 1960s. It's a relatively new concept, even though once you think about it, it's kind of like, well, yeah, that makes sense. Like the water is there. So I'm curious kind of how you came across this idea or sort of decided to take this approach. Yes, certainly. So actually in 2014, my parents' farm had their water rights threatened by the state of California. So Hmm. all of a sudden they weren't sure how they're going to water their trees. And at that time, I was working at Deutsche LA, this large ad agency, and I was doing creative technology there, rapid prototyping, 3D printing, circuit board design, programming, 3D modeling, doing it all to whip out little kind of one-off things for big companies. And just walking my dog one morning, I noticed all the dew on a grassy field. And I had this light bulb moment of, holy moly, what, why don't we make something to capture that dew overnight and maybe help my folks out? And so I just started that day with some tin foil and some panes of glass to see if I could capture do that night. And it's actually not that hard to do, it turns out, on a very basic level. And then like researching it, it turns out that actually indigenous people have been making water from air for thousands of years. The Aztecs made air wells. Um, there's different styles of design in India. There's fog nets that have kind of been around for a long time as well. So that just kind of like I saw, oh my God, all this potential. And just the idea of if I could make water with electricity. We're turning electricity into water. 
that's something that people should have access to because right now we don't have a lot of great sources of water around the planet. So I just got really inspired by that concept of being able to make fresh drinking water wherever you want. Yeah. And, you know, the topic of water has been, it seems like an increasing conversation this past decade, Mm -hmm. even going on from what's happening in California to even what's happening in Flint, Michigan, um, still happening. And so I'm just really interested in terms of how do you see your products addressing and tackling some of the nation's most complex and pressing water issues? Well, we're trying to do it in the most simple and effective way possible. So we've designed this mass manufacturable machine while working with Fred Bold, who's this incredible designer who did the Nest thermostat. Hmm. So we're, we're kind of got a, a couple approaches to help combat this issue globally. We want something that's aesthetically pleasing, that's affordable, like as affordable as possible, and makes the highest quality water possible. Like we don't just strive to go under the EPA regulations, we're going down to zero. We are trying to make the purest water on earth because what people really want is just pure water. And it's so hard to get these days. And everybody's got that problem. We, we can't get really, really, really pure water. Out of every tap in the world, you're getting a different water because it's coming from a different place. The municipalities are treating it differently different pipes, different faucets, different, different, different. And what we're doing is we're making molecularly the same product anywhere on earth. We're making pure H2O anywhere because we're, again, taking it from the air. We're distilling it inside of the machine. We're remineralizing it. We're filtering it in a way that makes it, you know, reliable anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would also just add like the difference between spout and sort of just atmospheric water generators, which is like the category, is that they're generative. There's no like plumbing or like pipes or like installation needed. You can literally just plug our machine into a wall socket and you're, you're making, you know, up to two and a half gallons of water a day. Right. So like the Flint, Michigan's of the world and like those types of situations, like that's in a lot of ways, like what we're directly attacking. Right. Like there's not like a, a chemical spill that can get into like a spout machine, for example, just because it is so isolated and it is like a generative solution versus just like a filtering or, you know, sort of tap water solution. And thinking about what you said a little earlier, Ruben, about how you decided to see if this would even work using tinfoil and glass. And now you have this beautiful looking product. And I know you mentioned the designers for Nest. We had Matt Rogers on the show a few months ago talking about his new startup, but we talked a lot about the intentionality of the design of Nest and people wanting these kind of products in their home, because otherwise, if people don't think it looks nice enough to have in their house, like they're not going to get it. And so I'm curious, kind of like, what was that journey like having that idea you tried this little experiment at home, it worked into building the kind of product that you guys have now. Yeah, that's been a wild journey. It's taken me around the world, many, many ups and downs along the way, panic attacks and all, all kinds of, of terrible things happening along the way and wonderful things. But basically, I went from that from that an initial test to making a machine, starting my first company when I was 25 called Do Good, D-E-W Good. We made this machine that was a 20-inch cube that weighed about 100 pounds that had this mysterious hose come out of one corner of it that was for fresh drinking water. And basically just thinking like as an engineer, it's like this thing does something amazing. You can plug it in and you can make 10 gallons of fresh drinking water a day. Isn't that amazing? Don't people want this product? And the short answer is no. <laughs> you know, basically I couldn't make it affordable to produce. I, you know, didn't think about what it costs to actually manufacture it. 
I didn't think about the mysterious nature of a hose coming out of a white box and how people aren't just like, yeah, I want to drink that. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah. So I had had a lot of uh, awakenings at that time and also just like learning how to be a leader, how to not just be a jerk and like manhandle, you know, whatever, just make people do things, you know, because I'm the CEO and blah, blah, blah. I had to kind of go over this thing and like learning that I got to listen to my team. Otherwise, they'll just leave me. You know, it's like it got to be a mutual respect thing. But yeah, I learned a lot in the, in the process. But yeah, first of all, just learning, we got to make it affordable. It's got to be good looking. It's got to be attractive and it's got to work consistently. That's just super important. And so there's a couple other atmospheric water generator companies out there in the world. But I think where we succeed is that we've got the smallest footprint, we're the quietest, and then we work more reliably because we're actually using a different process than what our competitors are using. We're using a a desiccant-based system, so we don't need as high a humidity level to work or as high of a temperature. So we're trying to design a product that works in as many homes as possible reliably every day so you can really count on it for a fresh source of drinking water. So it's been, it's been quite a journey. Yeah. The other part is when you're talking about introducing a new like countertop appliance, like it has to be worth it, right? Like that's mm. the big thing, right? And ultimately for us, like, you know, water is the most valuable thing that you drink. So we just wanted the sort of approachability of the product to make sense. You really have to just earn that spot. So that's the thing we've been sort of testing over the last three plus years. And, and Ruben's really been working on for, I guess, like closer to like eight or not. That was the real big reason we wanted to hire from the tier one industrial design team to really make something that, you know, people want to have on the counter. So wait, how do you make a product like this affordable? And where along the journey of creating it, does it usually become expensive? Great question. Every part on the journey becomes expensive. <laughs> yeah. I think it's about simplification. You know, I actually, I worked in aerospace for a few years and I ran teams guiding engineers to make stuff for NASA and SpaceX and working with engineers. And the problem I learned with engineers is that they love to engineer. And so if you just like hire engineers to build a product, they would love to spend 10 years engineering it to be just perfect and like, oh, let's add this feature. Let's make this small. Let's make this bigger. They will never stop. So what my job is, is to be like, what are we doing here? Okay, you want to plug it in and make water. We're helping people get water. If there's anything machine that doesn't exactly directly help people get fresh drinking water, it's not going to be a part of this design. So I think it's about refining and simplifying the design to make sure that we're actually providing value to people and worshiping that. You can't provide people with fresh drinking water, then nothing else matters. If the machine leaks, that's a problem. We got to make sure it doesn't leak. It doesn't hurt anybody in any way possible. But like another difference between us and our potential competitors is that we don't have a screen. There's no like flashing, you know, you made 17 gallons of water this week or, you know, fun facts. You know, it's like, I don't need that. I don't need fun facts. I don't need information about the weather for tomorrow or whatever. Like I just need fresh drinking water. So to make it affordable, we strip down everything possible. There's no dispenser in this machine. We're actually just using a pitcher, which is a form factor that many people have used for thousands of years. It fills up with water. You pour it into your cup. It's very simple. We used to have a dispenser motor with a little push thing. You push a cup up into it. it you wait 30 seconds, you know, it fills up your cup with water. But we like this design because we don't have to have another motor. We don't have a dispenser. We don't have a, a lever. We don't have a spring. You know, so it's all about simplifying, simplifying, simplifying. So we can just provide people with what they want, which is a reliable source of fresh drinking water. That's so interesting thinking about taking the simple approach to actually building the device. Because I know there's so much talk about how certain tech areas and verticals have just like taken it too far in recent years. Mm. Like I read an article recently about people who like want to buy a non-smart TV 
And that's like really hard now. And it's like, well, what if I don't want to pay for those features? Or the thing you mentioned about the screen in particular, I still don't get why refrigerators have screens. You can't convince me why that makes sense. <laughs> like, I still just do not understand that. And it's nice to hear sort of being like, no, we decided to make it simple because like no one's buying a water dispenser to have a screen to look at X, Y, and Z. Like they're right. buying it to create the water. Right. And that takes some self-control because Tyler and I, we have a lot of really good ideas or fun ideas or interesting things. And we have to, I don't want to use this phrase, but get rid of the things that aren't directly going to serve, you know, the product and our customer and sacrifice those things. Yeah. And it's also like about making a product that we can ship. Right. Like that's where, mm. you know, the hardware process and the reason why everyone says like hardware is hard is because you can have it's a thing like Ruben was talking about where like you can just engineer forever. Like we could be engineering this product and just never ship it. But the other thing is like in terms of the cost, in terms of the things that we've seen happen, like you have a pump that you're working with for four months and all of a sudden it goes bad. And then that part breaks three other parts that then need to all be changed. Right. So those things have like a cascading effect. So if you're just not trying to simplify at like kind of every turn, it just balloons into this like crazy thing where you're kind of playing this game of whack-a-mole in both like the engineering world and like the sort of cost world. So we just try to limit those things. And also I like to think all the people that we kind of bring in are like engineering focused. Like one of the things we, we've interviewed, I think like a dozen design firms. And the biggest thing we started realizing was like, everyone can design this thing that looks beautiful, but like who can actually design something that can get made, mm. right? And that's where someone like Fred is like a game changer because that's all he thinks about. He's a designer, but he's also an engineer. So this whole design for manufacturing process, like that's where I think a lot of these startups, especially in the hardware space, just they never make it out of like this, you know, design for manufacturing hell, and then they never ship a product. Mm -hmm. I know something you mentioned a little bit earlier is sort of the concept of something that's going to ship. Mm. And I know from some of the earlier journey of the company, Ruben, you had some issues with kind of getting the product around mm -hmm. to different places. And I was curious if you wanted to share stories like that or kind of those roadblocks you did hit in the beginning when you were trying to figure this out before you landed on what you guys have now. Yeah. Well, you know, we did a, I did a Indiegogo campaign, you know, and actually partnered with an ad agency to make all the content for that. and. I just wasn't able to, the thing is I, I try to hit every market possible with the machine where I was like, it's going to be a white box with a tube coming out of it. Sailors are going to want this. Farmers are going to want this. People living in cities are going to want this. People living in a desert are going to want this. And I tried to do this, you know, just saying it's for everybody kind of thing. And that just didn't resonate with anyone ultimately. Mm -hmm. So it's like trying the shotgun approach made it so we didn't actually like take a stand for anything that people could get behind. So that was the most painful thing because me, you know, putting myself out there, raising money for do good and then failing publicly on Indiegogo, that just sent me into a, a personal spiral that took me like at least a year, a year and a half to get out of. And it was really meeting Tyler that got me out of this giving up kind of feeling. But actually, right after the Indiegogo campaign, we actually got invited to go to Dubai for an accelerator and make water for the royal family. So it was like the Indiegogo hmm. failed. It's like, oh, here's an interesting thing. We're going to go to Dubai. We get to Dubai and Customs has taken apart our machine and they broke it. So all of a sudden I'm in Dubai in this hotel that the, the shake, the royal shake has put us up in and the machine's broken in a way that I cannot fix it. It's like pressurized line, copper tubing, 
it's like crap you know what are we going to do so i had to spend we had two weeks until this big photo shoot so i actually took this train up and down the arabian peninsula to find parts to build a new machine from scratch which was probably the greatest adventure of my life but it's just it's just i just keep seeing this thing happen where like something terrible happens and then i'm like called to go on this epic adventure to of self-discovery or of you know exploring some other part of the world and like that journey of going up and down the Arabian Peninsula to find parts I met so many interesting people along the way so many people from around the world I met people who had never heard of Los Angeles before that was <laughs> that that changed my worldview oh my god and then I also saw this thing that was the most fascinating thing which is that in front of the very poorest parts of Dubai in old Dubai and the very newest giant building part of Dubai, new Dubai, they had something in common. The very poorest and the very wealthiest people had something in common, which is they had these giant piles of five gallon drums in front of every apartment building of empty bottles of water. And Dubai, the reason why they brought us there is because right now they're desalinating the water. And there's a lot of problems with that. And the, unfortunately, the water doesn't taste great out of the tap. Doesn't taste great. I'll have to say that. <laughs> And um, so everybody has these five gallon drums delivered. And so that's what's connecting the very poorest people and the very wealthiest people. So that's when the kind of seed for why don't we make something that could replace water delivery systems like these five gallon drums, something that could fit on the countertop. And uh, that was, I think, like the seed of the inspiration of, of Spout. Wait, I'm so interested. Like, I was going to ask, why did they break it in customs? I don't know. I'm, I'm not even going to speculate, but they took it, the whole machine apart and they tried to move some, they tried to take it 100% apart and they just like snapped something that should not have, like they took everything apart and it was a very fragile, it was a prototype. So it wasn't made to be, you know, taken apart and handled that way. But yeah, that was like the worst feeling. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it also looks pretty unusual. Like I saw the very first prototypes, like it just... Oh yeah. If you were to run that thing through like an x-ray scanner or just to look at it, like it just... It's true. Because no one knows, you can't tell someone like, hey, it's an atmospheric water generator when they have no idea what that is. Right. So it just looks like this metal cube that, you know, has an outlet. And like, yep. yeah. They too were like, no one would drink water out of this <laughs> yeah. hose outside of this box. They're like, what is this? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's so yeah. interesting with that story and sort of thinking about how water really is that kind of an issue for everyone. Cause you mm. are totally right. I mean, living in New York city, I think about it. Like we're very lucky here to have good tap water because it comes out from the Catskills and like, there's this great system in place, but that's something that if you turn on the tap here in New York, yeah, we've got different pipes. But we're all getting the same water, no matter where in the city you live, you're in a high rise that costs 5 million a condo. You're here where I am in Brooklyn. You're here in some of the other areas in the city. So it is interesting. That must have been a very interesting light bulb moment for you, especially being somewhere so far from probably where you thought you would focus at first. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of this, um, I think you call it the Eames design theory, banana leaf design, where it's if you go to, I think, Indonesia, the very poorest people eat off of banana leaves. And then if you're like middle class and you eat out of metal cups and metal plates, and then if you're the wealthiest, you eat out of banana leaves as well. And it's like, it's hmm. this kind of great equalizer and it's a, it's a perfect design in a way. So it's something like, that's the, basically the inspiration for Spout was like, what's something that poorer people could afford, but also wealthier people would want because they want a higher quality of water. Yeah, something like that can connect everybody. It's, it's kind of the great equalizer in that way. Yeah. And we're going to be taking a quick break. When we get back, we'll get into how they designed Spout with fundraising in mind, how they hashed out who would be CEO, and how they built a team of people as passionate as they are. 
I'm interested in what was the fundraising process? Like, how do you pitch this product where you're like, water is important, everybody needs water? How do you pitch that to a venture capitalist? Yeah. So in the beginning, the interesting thing is like, we had very rough prototypes, like things that looked like 3D printed laundry baskets. So a lot of it was like the storytelling, but also having a product that like people could try. But the biggest thing is like, everybody thinks that the water that they drink is like the most pure water, right? But no one has ever tested that water. And that's how you walk into things that are like Flint, Michigan, where you're just like, you trust tap water, you're trusting these existing systems, and then they fail you. So one of the things that we sort of worked on very early on is just testing our water against all of the sort of leading water bottle brands, water delivery, and just proving that it's the most pure from a chemical perspective. Like that was the thing we cared the most about. And then it became sort of this business exercise of, okay, now that you have something that's incredibly pure, it's generative, like you're not relying on, you know, existing infrastructure other than electricity, what is the value prop? Ultimately, we, we sort of did this side by side comparison against like spout water or like the spout machine and like water delivery. So you don't have to like have these, you know, five gallon jugs that are getting like trucked in from all over the world that are like, filling up like the front of your like entryway to your house or like near your kitchen like you just have something that's like more convenient it's better for the environment it's more cost effective like i think the payback period for us against sparklets is like six months and you're ultimately getting a higher quality of water so in a world where like scarcity and sort of the quality or like the purity of water are going to take more of like the center stage sort of spotlight you know, that's where you have to have something like an atmospheric water generator if you're going to want what's best for like you or your family in terms of like really, you know, high quality drinking water. So mm-hmm. and just to end on that, like that was the thing where investors like we were the most sort of cost effective atmospheric water generator out there. It's by a factor of like, I think five or six times more affordable than our closest like competitor. And it's also, I think, an order of magnitude smaller. So like between three to four hundred percent smaller than our sort of closest competitors. So that was kind of like the business case that we really ultimately made is just better than water delivery. And it's a fraction of the price of what people are, are going to be like currently paying for water. Mm-hmm. And sort of sticking on the fundraising note for a second, because I know, Ruben, you mentioned it was really hard for you to raise money when you first got started and then bringing Tyler on board made that a lot easier. So I'm curious, how did you guys meet? <laughs> we met through a mutual friend. I was actually the, the CTO of this other company. And the CEO said, hey, let's have a dinner with this guy, Tyler, you know, kind of feeling him out to see if he was going to be a good fit for the company. And we all sat down and, you know, I was just talking about my background, about do good. And then that's all Tyler wanted to talk about that dinner was do good and about this machine. He was just like, what? You can make water out of air? Like he was so floored by this concept. And at some point I had to be like, look, look, we're here to talk about this other company, Tyler, you and I will will talk some, we'll set up a time to, to talk and meet and I'll get you a machine. And But he just like immediately got, I think, inspired and just very excited about the potential because it just is a a game changing paradigm. You plug a machine in, you have fresh drinking water. It's it's not, you know, you don't see that every day. So that's how we met was a mutual friend. Yeah. And it it is very cool to see that like when you see like an atmospheric water runner for the first time, like it just it blows people away. Right. Like it, it was like something that I saw had never heard of before. And we continually see that when we bring a machine over to people's houses, they're like, it doesn't even seem real. And then they try the water and then they're like, this is awesome. Like, how do I get one? You know, and that is like sort of the path. So that was, it was like, once I saw it, I was like, this is amazing. 
the form factor was a little bit like was definitely the biggest challenge. And now, like, I think we've got something very cool. So how did bringing Tyler on make the fundraising journey better or different or easier to maneuver compared to the first time when you tried doing it? I mean, I think that the first time I just didn't, I wasn't balanced in my approach and I wasn't thinking about it from an investor's perspective. My attitude was like, this is really cool. This is a game changer. You're going to want to invest in this. And I also had this attitude of do good. So we should give away one in 10 machines. We should ship to Flint, Michigan. And that I know turned off most investors I talked to about do good. And that was kind of like the, a big, there's a lot of like these reality kind of slaps you in the face sometimes where it's like, oh, investors that unfortunately I'd been talking to back then don't actually care about helping people get water. And I get that. And I, and I, I can't like whatever an investor's job and what they're obsessed about is making as much money as humanly possible. And I didn't frame do good to be like that. I framed do good to be an opportunity for humanity to have a new source of water and not be ruled by tap and bottled water. And that just did not get any investors interested, basically. But then Tyler's like, again, with the, the marketing approach and with the aesthetic approach, that was one of his main things. The reason why we have this design now, and we've been a design-focused company, Spout, is because Tyler was like, this machine has got to be attractive to the investor. So I was thinking before, this machine is going to be for people who need access to water. But Tyler's like, it's got to be both. It's got to be something that an investor is going to want to put on his countertop to show off to his friends to say, look at this cool ass thing I got sitting on my counter. I was making fresh and water, try a glass, it tastes delicious. And we actually did that with Tyler. Tyler actually put us in touch with this guy, one of my favorite people on earth now, Rob Reinhardt, who was the founder of Soylent. And he had the machine on his countertop and was able to share it with people. And he was our first, I think, yeah. one of our first investors. Ah, yes. Covering the venture industry makes you a little, just a little more cynical yeah. every day. Yeah. Every day. <laughs> it's changing though. I, like you can't yeah. pitch that it's good for people too much right? or they're not interested anymore. Yeah. <laughs> no. yeah, but that's why we love Tom. Tom gets it. Tom is our man. We, we love Tom. Burnt Island Ventures. It's great. Yeah. Yes, listeners. Tom is Tom Ferguson, the former solo GP and founder of Burnt Island Ventures, a water-focused early stage fund. <laughs> He's the who best. Is probably one of the yeah. funniest people I've ever talked to. His one-liners are just off the chain. Yes, he is the reason we are all here today. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Wait, how do you both split up responsibilities? Was there ever a toggle between who was going to be the CEO? <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. I mean, you know, in the beginning, basically, like with my failure with Do Good, I was like, I don't want to be CEO. I'm not doing a good job. I just try to run this company and it crashed and burned. And then Tyler, you know, came in and, and wanted to be the CEO of this new venture, of this new, you know, of Spout. And um, so he was CEO for the first, I guess, almost two years, year and a half, maybe something like that. And then, you know, I kind of see myself like a machine gun where it's like, if you point me at something, you tell me what to do. I will do that. I will obliterate whatever you ask me to accomplish. I will knock it out of the park. And that's a kind of power, I feel like, to be able to point me in different directions. But at some point, there's a lot of different things that we have to balance. Obviously, like everything we discussed earlier about in order to make it a mass market product, simplifying the design of the product, you know, the level of quality of the product. And ultimately, I think we disagreed on on some of the, the fundamental things. And we just needed to learn how to listen to each other more. And I, I did the same thing in the past where I'm CEO, you know, we should do it this way and kind of controlling people to do what you want them to do. Like that's one method. But then what we found has worked is when we have an open dialogue about things and when whoever's leading 
is able to listen to the other person because if you can't listen to the people who you're working with it's just it's not going to lead anywhere good because one person alone can't totally contain the vision of the company and know all the answers to all the questions and make all the calls and all this stuff and ultimately what we've learned over the years is how to be permeable how do we listen to each other because what it's evolved to is now I don't feel like one of us works for the other person or I feel like we share the leadership role really well because what we're actually serving is the company. We're collectively serving the vision of the company where it's not about I'm right, you're wrong. It's what does the company need? And we're always able to break our ties by taking a step back and being like, what are we doing? Like, what, what are we really doing here? You know, whenever we have to make a decision, how does this serve the customer? How does it serve the product? How does it serve the vision of the company? And we're almost always able to come to, you know, a direction to go in with the company because we have to make decisions every day, right? And luckily we kind of developed this relationship now where I'm the left half of the brain and he's the right half of the brain. And, and somehow we're able to, to dance really every day. And then if we ever can't make a decision together, we'll bring in a third party. Luckily, we have some of the greatest advisors on earth. I love our team of advisors. We're so lucky to have these people. So we have some incredible tiebreakers these days if we ever can't come to a conclusion. But yeah, so, so Tyler was, was a CEO and then, you know, we felt like the, the company wasn't getting to where we wanted it to go at us by a certain time. So we ended up switching roles and I feel like it's been working out very well since then. Yeah. And, and again, I, I feel like I listened to Tyler. I mean, I try to really take in everything that he's saying and he's our chief business strategist, chief business officer. So I really hand off as much responsibility as humanly possible. I feel like my job as a CEO is to hand off as much responsibility as possible. I ultimately feel like I have the responsibility of the company, like making sure that the water's pure. That's my responsibility. That's a huge responsibility. Making sure that the machine doesn't burn down somebody's house. That's a huge responsibility. And, you know, I couldn't sleep at night if I wasn't 100% sure that everything was as safe as humanly possible. So I, I carry a lot of really big responsibilities, but I also share those responsibilities with other people. And the way we work now is when we have other people in the company, I have them tell me, what is it that you want to do for the company that's going to provide value for the company? And what's the responsibility that you can take? So for me as a CEO, again, what, what I feel like I'm doing, my job is to actually hand out and spread out that responsibility and the workload, because if I'm working too much, I'm not working smart. So whenever I start to feel overwhelmed, I know that I'm not working smart and I got to stop what I'm doing and think, let's talk to an advisor. Let's talk to a different team. Let's talk to a new manufacturer. If something's not working out, I don't want to be overwhelmed. I want to work smart. So we have to stop working sometimes so we can actually regroup and figure out how do we work more intelligently and not harder. I feel like I'm trying to find ways to not work as hard, as terrible as that sounds. And I know Jason Calacanis would, you know, dismiss me immediately if you heard me say that or anything about work-life balance. I'm in full um... support of that. <laughs> but but it really, I, I need a work-life balance. And if I'm overwhelmed, I'm not doing my job right. Because with my vision for the company, with our vision for the company, we're able to, to share that vision with people and have them be like, I want to come work at Spout. And that's the greatest gift that we can share our vision and have people inspired to work with us. So again, if I'm overwhelmed, that means that we're not actually like reaching out and asking for help appropriately. We're not working smart. And I feel like that's been the key in the last year, at least to our success and our continued growth. Mm -hmm. And Tyler, how would you describe the breakdown of responsibilities and how you see sort of how the structure works well? Yeah, I mean, I think part of you wants to control everything, you know, in terms of like the, the way that like ego works. And 
you also have to realize that like the company is the most important thing. There are disagreements that we've had. And honestly, like, you know, that was a disagreement for sure, but it wasn't really something that was like obviously insurmountable because we just cared so much about the product and like the company at the end of the day that we were like, all right, we have to figure out a way to make this work. Right. And the like roles, responsibilities, like those are things that are, they were like very ubiquitous to start. And I think over time we kind of found this rhythm or like I, I call it like the slipstream where now we're all in this together and we're like moving in the same direction and everything is like flowing kind of nicely. But if you want to talk about like fundamentally, it's just marketing versus engineering. You know, like those are the things we kind of break down and we get together on the fundraising stuff or kind of leveraging like our individual like experiences on whether it's like what we've talked to like investors about or like what advisors we have, like we try to figure out all the things that we don't know or don't have a good, good grasp on and find like, an expert in that world to help us navigate those challenges. So like, that's kind of how we, we split apart things today, I think. And it's worked really well for us. So we wanted a solid foundation. I think the proof is in the fundraising and the ultimate like success of the company and like this current sort of pre-order campaign that we're on. But so far, I think things have been really great since we kind of made that change. It was like two or three years ago now. Mm -hmm. And how did you go about hiring and building a team? And also, how do you help develop a um, company culture in terms of making sure employees also have like work-life balance and stuff? Uh, that's a really challenge. So I think a lot of it is having a unique product has kind of helped build this kind of like gravity around the company, right? People are very intrigued by like solving a tough problem and contributing to solving that problem. So we try to figure out the things that are going to be critically important to the future of the company and then work backwards in terms of who we need to hire. So like engineering or delivering unit is something we've been thinking about for years, right? And we're about to start our first, well, our second real manufacturing run. So it's just a question of like, we sort of lay it out. Here's what we're going to need design for manufacturing help or help on like, you know, the performance marketing side or finding guys that have sold companies before that are in a similar space or are in hardware so they can help us like avoid all the challenges that we've faced or are going to face. So it's really about creating this like sounding board of experts is kind of how I think about it. And in terms of the company culture, it's also a thing that we spent a lot of time thinking about at the beginning. Like with when Ruben was talking about like our emphasis on design, the core of that has really been like around creating the brand of like what is spout? What are the things that are important to the company? We want to make sure that every advisor or employee or like ourselves kind of like emanate as part of that company culture. So we send literally all of our contractors like our brand guidelines, for example, just so that they know like this is who we are and this is like how we want to work and this is like what we ultimately want to do. And finding that fit is not always like easy, but I do think having the conversation around it at the very start like has helped a lot, right? And just making sure like this is the mission. We're focused on doing this. We have a bunch of people that come to us like, hey, would you guys want to make like a machine for like farms or the government or you know whatever it is? And it's just like focusing on that sort of singular mission. I think has helped us like not only attract people but also course correct as we kind of go through launching the company. Mm -hmm. And sort of playing off of that mission-driven company idea, this is, and I know as you mentioned earlier, Ruben, one of the things you came across 
as a struggle during fundraising is you were like, this is a product for everyone. Literally everyone could benefit from this depending on where you live and sort of like what your socioeconomic situation is. And there's definitely obviously truth to that. Clean waters, we've been talking about it all call, essential. So how do you guys think about marketing and scale from where you guys are at, knowing that this is something that literally everyone could use, but taking that catch-all approach doesn't generally play out usually for marketing and as a way to scale because you can't roll out the same campaign everywhere across the world and do that with any kind of cost effectiveness or necessarily ROI. So thinking about where you guys are now, how do you think about scale when in theory, this product could end up in the hands of anyone? Yeah, it's something we we focus on a lot. There's sort of the very fundamental, you know, paid media content approach, right, where you can just run ads and just scale that up. But the problem is, we're, we're trying to get to, to like a $0 customer acquisition cost. That's our goal of the company, right? It's how to not spend money on ads. And that is about figuring out who the target markets are and, and really understanding their problems and then addressing them. Spout at the end of the day is not going to be like a one product company. We're trying to build an ecosystem for the home, then also expanding that out to other categories that we think are very interesting. Like we do think a lot about agriculture and we do think a lot about how to address communities where like they don't have electricity, but they need drinking water. So there are all these different solutions that like, you know, like the market is very much like out there. I think it's a lot about like focus and addressing the things that we can address. And then as we are successful, we keep adding new markets or adding new products to serve different sort of demographics or like segments of the world. Yeah, if I can add to that a little bit too, I'm not sure if I said this yet, but 40% of Americans don't trust tap water. 40% of Americans don't trust tap water. And so their other option is bottled water, of which sucks, basically. I mean, it's good. It's obviously it's good if you in a way, but you know, it's falling out of favor very quickly right now. Obviously, like microplastics in the bottle, the amount of CO2 emissions from moving water on the planet is absurd. Water is incredibly heavy, eight pounds per gallon. Do the math there, plus the bottle, all that stuff. So in terms of our market, I'd say, again, 40% of Americans don't trust tap. You can choose spout. If you don't want to trust tap, you have bottled water, but you don't like the plastic bottle waste that you're producing, then choose spout. That's kind of one way I think about it. And it's been really interesting. You know, we sold a dozen of these machines about a year ago. And to hear every single person who bought one bought it for a different reason. Yeah. Everyone that we've talked to has a different water story that is so interesting. Like one person was like, oh, I don't trust government water, a.k.a. tap water. Hmm. I have never and, heard anyone call it that. Yeah. I know. I kind of love it, though. But <laughs> and so they were going to hold to Walmart to get bottled water. And one day Walmart didn't have any more bottles. And so they were like, oh, crap. So our one solution for our water source at home is, is not reliable. And then that day they bought a spout machine. There's somebody else who had a Berkey filter. That's a very popular water filter brand. They couldn't get the filters for Berkey. For some reason, there's some California state issue with moving the water filters over the border, something like that. And she's like, well, if I can't get the filters for this thing, I, I need something else. And so she bought a spout machine. It's super interesting. Yeah. So that's what I was going to say in the very beginning. Everyone just thinks the water they drink is the highest quality, right? And that I think you're seeing that just play out in real time in some cases for people. That's just not the case, right? Or microplastics is like this new thing that now everyone's really focused on and, and it's just like for good reason. And it just isn't a thing 
that, you know, we just want to subject people to, right? So that's why we're trying to create like just a new source, something that is, I know it sounds like crazy to start, but it's like chemically the purest water that you can drink. So that's sort of our goal. And, and again, it's like, you can test our water. We, we test it all the time with third parties. And, and it's just, it is crazy to see what is in other, I mean, look, it's not like bottled water is like poison, right? Like I don't want to send that message out, but I think it does have things that are like trace levels of like chlorine or like arsenic or things that you, if you have the choice, why would you drink those things? Right. Even if it's trace amounts, like it just doesn't make any sense. So I think if it's one thing I would want people to take away is like the water that you're drinking is not necessarily as pure as, as you may think. And it's probably a good idea to at least test that water or look for alternatives, you know, one of which we offer. But yeah, just something to think about. Mm, what an ominous point to end on. But this has been <laughs> such a fun conversation. So thank you guys both for coming on. This has been a pleasure. For sure. Thank Great you. to meet you both. Super pleasure. So that was our conversation with Tyler and Ruben. And Dom, I thought this one was really interesting. What did you think? Me too. I loved hearing about the company and seeing the product, especially because I am most certainly a tap water skeptic. And so hearing about their product and how they're trying to like, I guess, make better alternatives and stuff like that. And I was I was all in. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because they're not the first founders we've had on the show talk about how important design is and how like you can have a product that people would benefit from so much or like would make investors so much money. And if it's not visually appealing, neither side cares. Like the consumer doesn't want it. The VCs don't want to back it. I thought that was just so interesting hearing about like all the different ways they try to simplify the design and like make it attractive for VCs specifically. It reminded me of like a millennial era products where it has to be aesthetically pleasing in addition to also working. And when they were bringing Mm -hmm. up the fact that, you know, people already have like a bunch of stuff on their counters, you know, like the next thing you want to put on there, you want it to be pretty. At least, at the very least, you want it to be cute. And so, yeah, I mean, going through all those things, I love how they spoke about simplifying it and just making it the Mm. most basic, simple thing. And that is what will get people to want it. And I actually like that because, I mean, we were you were bringing up how it's like, why does my fridge have a screen? Like, I know. Did you see that tweet where that person sent a tweet from their fridge and it was like, oh my god, why does a fridge have that option? <laughs> so I, I love I love the simplicity of this. No, I know it's really that is something that like drives me nuts. Like, I want to replace my microwave, I want to replace my toaster oven, and if you look them up now, you can't just get a basic one for twenty bucks anymore. It's like, oh no, you need this one that has fifty other settings that half your other appliances do, and now it's. 20 the price and it's like okay but I don't need that I know so it's nice to see them be like nope and um, obviously listeners you couldn't see but they're showing us it a little bit it is literally just a white box with a picture in the middle yes the design couldn't be more simple and it look, does look really nice. Yes, it does. It's really, really pretty. And I definitely think it's interesting too because talking about the design definitely seems like some of that influence came from Tyler joining and being like, okay, Ruben, you have this great mission and you really want to you know, make this product work. It has a lot of importance beyond just being like a good consumer product. Obviously, access to clean water is super important, but he wasn't designing a product for the VCs. I know. And he kind of couldn't fundraise at first and like the fact that he needed like someone to come in like was a little more ingrained in the industry to be like hey man like this is what you need to do or like you're not going to have the success even though you're creating the exact same product at the end of the day and I thought that was really interesting and probably a sort of dynamic we don't see 
we don't hear about as much as actually is out there. Yeah, that's why I asked about it because I was kind of worried. I was like, okay, you have this product that says it's going to do great things for people and save lives. What do the venture capitalists think about that? They because hate it's that. <laughs> you know, because it's like you have a product that, you know, gives clean water to people. And I can already hear an investor saying, okay, good for the people who need clean water, but like, how do I make money from that? Right. And I feel like, I don't know, that's one of the fine lines that venture capital walks, I guess, in terms of having all these life-saving products and companies, but then also trying to find, I guess, really the capitalist angle within it. And I'm glad that they've been able to find a balance, but I'm interested to see how they scale in the future. Mm. Yeah, scale was something I was wondering about as well, especially because they mentioned a few times throughout the call about how affordable the product was. But then when I remember I looked it up, like you can pre-order it now for $3.99, but it regular will retail at $7.99. And like, I don't know about you, Dom, but that might be a different definition of affordable than I have. I thought it was going to be like $90 at highest because they said affordable. Right. So I was like, okay, like maybe 90 is the highest as like a luxury clean water thing, right? Right. I was not expecting $7.99. Especially because like the people who need clean water the most and obviously there's some nuance to this like you can live in more of a socioeconomically wealthy area and still have like little access to clean water but it usually does kind of sway like lower socioeconomic status is where they have mainly the issues with access to clean water and some of the more wealthy areas wealthy towns and cities don't have as much of an issue with it so the one thing though I did think of was which I wish we had asked them about because I had written this down prior to the call and we just like we just had so much else to talk about I didn't end up bringing it up but I'm curious if there ever is a market to sell into like towns or cities or sort of like oh, yeah. government organizations and stuff like that who could then supply these because we all know looking at the crazy defense budget, the crazy budgets all of these police departments have across the country. They definitely could shell out for a few of these. This would definitely be affordable for like a city government to provide to like its citizens that need it the most. So I am curious if that's like a thing they're thinking about. Yeah, I think that would probably be the best bet. Like I'm thinking like a town like Flint, Michigan, where I'm assuming that community cannot necessarily drop $800 on a water filter like this. Right. But I could imagine that somewhere along the line, maybe the city or the county can find the budget to provide the citizens with this product, especially, I mean, hey, we don't know who's behind the water crisis, but hey. hey. And so it's like maybe, yeah, like counties and cities and towns should if there is a pressing crisis like this where, you know, responsibility is up in the air, maybe this would be a good way to alleviate, you know, some of what's happening in the meantime as investigations keep going. Mm -hmm. But also, that could also go back to the socioeconomic because I guess it would all depend on how much money the county has. Yeah. Yeah. The one other wrinkle there, too, is just that, especially when Ruben was talking about like when they he was in Dubai and noticed that it didn't matter like what neighborhood he was in or like sort of like what socioeconomic status was there that everyone was getting water delivered. And it occurred to me that like, I have no idea how much that costs if you get literally all of the water you use in your house delivered. So maybe in the realm of affordability, like maybe $7.99 does pay for itself relatively quickly, I guess in that case. I just like, I'm a tap water girly through and through. So like, I have like no concept of how much money it costs to like have water on hand all the time. I definitely buy bottled water all the time. And that actually came from when I was living in LA. And I remember one time in my college dorm, I turned the water on and it was like this brown color or something. Oh, yeah. And that a after that, I was like, no, 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 no. I cannot drink the tap water here. Oh, that's like my hometown water. 
Yeah, I feel like I've been covering and talking to more and more water startups recently. And I know we mentioned the VC fund a few times on this conversation, Burnt Island Ventures, that guy, Tom Ferguson, great source. And there's so much opportunity there. I mean, the entire fund only backs water startups because there's enough to have raised a $30 million fund to back them. So it's like there's definitely a lot going on in water right now, which I think is really interesting. I know. And I'm curious to see how like Spout either sets itself apart from what's going on there, sort of like fits into that trend as they keep growing. I know. Me too. I'm definitely interested. Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter Becca Skuta, alongside senior reporter Dominic Midori davis Found is produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel. Our illustrator is Bryce Durbin. Found's audience development and social media is managed by Morgan Little, Alyssa Stringer, and Natalie Kreisman. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Listener.